Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. I have the incredible job of interviewing geniuses from around the world about the trend shaping the way we live and work. Today's guest is Glenn Heemstra. Glenn started his career as a professor, and for the last 40 years, he's been working as a futurist. In our conversation, we talk about how he does his research to identify and vet trends. Then we get into specifics about some of the trends he's following, including the impending decline of the human population, the global reappearance of authoritarianism, the potential of a space economy, and energy innovations. The 12 Geniuses Futurist Friday episodes are brought to you exclusively by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is a B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. Reach out at thestarconspiracy.com for more information or to schedule a chat with the team. Glenn, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Thank you, Donna. Nice to be here. What are you reading, watching, listening to that you'd recommend our audience to pay attention to to become better visionaries? I recommend that everybody, even if you don't like to read novels, read at least one science fiction novel per year. If you love to read them, of course, you read many more than that. A couple of recent science fiction novels that, that caught my attention that I enjoyed were one very much talked about here in the last three or four months is Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry of the Future, which actually doesn't read that much like a novel. It's more like a, a long white paper with a bit of story in between the, the white paper points. But it's really his, his view of how we get out of the climate mess or fix that we're in. And it basically his argument that it's going to probably take some pretty radical actions. And he is probably among science fiction writers, my favorite writer. His, another really good book by him, by the way, if you're interested in the future of climate and what the impacts on, on us. Actually, there, there's two things. One, he wrote a book called New York 2140, and it's set in a uh, post-global warming New York in which the lower half of Manhattan is flooded. And so it's sort of like a mini Venice, and yet people are surviving and business goes on. And, and uh, how, how do we live in that world? And then some years earlier, he wrote, he wrote a three-book series that became known as the uh, Science and the Capital series. And their titles were as clever, clever titles, 40 Signs of Rain, 50 Degrees Below, and 60 Days and Counting. And uh, Washington, D.C. is hit hit by a big flood, and then there's a big deep freeze. And so he's, he's very good. But then I also just read one of my other favorite science fiction writers, uh, Neil Stevenson, who is known for, for, for many of his books. But he just uh, published recently a book called Termination Shock, which also happens to be a sort of climate fiction. Science fiction writers who are not writing space operas are interestingly writing more and more about either a post-global warming world or a world in which you know we're involved in a serious fight to try to to stave off uh, global warming. So those two writers in particular are very good, Neil Stevenson and, and uh, Kim Stanley Robinson, I think. In terms of a general trend that I, that I have been paying attention to for some years, which which can be loosely termed the the rise of global authoritarianism, I've been paying attention to. Uh, to people like uh, Timothy Snyder, but also Eric Larson, who writes a lot of kind of historical chronicles. He's a former journalist who writes these sort of deep histories. There's a little bit of imagined conversation within them based on the historical documents. But he wrote, wrote a book on the American ambassador that was sent to Germany in the early 1930s, kind of mid-1930s up to probably 38 or 39. The title was called The Garden of Beasts. And it's really the story of this guy and his family, his wife and his daughter, and their experience uh, as the Third Reich rose. And what's fascinating about that is how, as many, many writers have noted, how mundane the rise of that authoritarian culture seemed to be at the time. 
And uh, every time something dramatic would happen, everybody would assume that was the exception. And, and of course, would not happen again. And I think it's worth paying attention to that because we have this, this long human history of, of a um, tendency toward authoritarianism or tyranny, uh, as Timothy Snyder calls it. We almost have a yearning for it. I think a great many people in the world kind of have a yearning to be ruled in that kind of culture. What kind of lighter pieces do you examine when you're doing your research, uh, like podcasts or uh, articles, et cetera? I have been and, and am um, quite the scanner. So there's every day I, you know, I, I scan uh, a variety of, variety of sources. The ones I probably pay the most attention to are things like uh, MIT Technology Review, uh, what's coming out of the uh, uh, Space Exploration Initiative at the MIT Media Lab. They have, they have interesting stuff. But what comes out of the Institute for the Future uh, and Jane McConnell, they write a lot about not just future trends, but about how to think about the future. Um, futurists, uh, if, if they publish something, I try to see it. Um, uh, academic futurists like Sohail Inatubia. Uh, I don't know if you know Sohail. Uh, I've, I've referred to him since I met him in 2000 as the best futurist in the world. Uh, he's an Australian futurist, but uh, quite the cultural, uh, takes a very cultural perspective on how the future is shaped um, and has developed a lot of methodologies for sort of not just identifying, let's say, technological trends and their implications, but identifying the deep cultural stories that are behind those and, and how they might change the deep cultural story that uh, that we live with. As we, In fact, the, the authoritarian story that we just mentioned, that's that's kind of a story if you think about it. That, that humans kind of kind of crave, and so he might then, instead of just saying what's a new technology, he will say, well, how will this new technology impact that cultural story? Uh, so he's very good. Um, uh, Wendy Schultz, who is an American who lives in the UK, uh, writes a lot of good stuff on on methodology, and and she's very good. Uh, some some of the the science publications that that float across. I mean, I, I actually do pay attention to Popular Science as well as uh, Scientific American and other kinds of things like that. Um, I, and then I'm um, the, the, the trend area that has captured my imagination really since the very beginning uh, is um, the, our future in space. Uh, part of the reason I became a futurist was I, I was a kid, you know, I was, I was a young, very young school kid when the space race began. Uh, so I'm old enough to remember that. And, um, and that really, I suppose, kind of flipped the switch to me thinking about the future and what the very long-term future, and by very long-term, I mean the thousand-year future and the million-year future and so on for planet Earth and whatever species are living here, hopefully us. Uh, and, and so I follow um, what, what's happening kind of in, in, from the Planetary Society and the Mars Society and the Space Frontier Foundation and so on. Uh, sort of trying to keep up to date with what's uh, what's going on with our potential of becoming spacefaring, tr truly spacefaring, not just occasionally sending explorations out, but, but truly becoming space, becoming a part of the environment in which we live and work. It really often boggles my mind what people do believe when they're fed information and misinformation. And so I'm wondering, you know, as a futurist, you're contemplating things that most human beings really can't wrap their heads around or seem impossible based on the information we know. So how do you determine if something is valid or is complete garbage? Well, of course, that's, that's not, there's no automatic answer to that. But I, 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 for, for me, 
I, I do pay attention to more um, established sources, as, as I mentioned, like MIT's Technology Review. And you kind of assume that that uh, writers who are, who are writing there are, are going to be vetted by that university. Um, if I'm, um, if I'm, and I do spend uh, an inordinate amount of time on on Twitter and other social media platforms these days. And of course, you're getting all kinds of, of click-throughs to various kinds of pieces uh, and medium or substacks or whatever that, that people have written, and you don't have any idea who they are. But I do take time to check their bio and, are, you know, are they a professor or the university? What's their background? Where have they worked? And so on. So I do try to do some of that and not just accept um, what they're saying because you, you get lots of uh, varying opinions. And it is, as you mentioned, quite, it's actually kind of shocking uh, the degree to which people are now willing to believe uh, really great, crazy stuff that that if you step back just a meter, you, know, you see how crazy it is, but people are unwilling to do that. So uh, in addition to trying to ascertain who the person is or where they're from or what they might know, I literally uh, judge the the efficacy of what they're talking about based on how good is the idea. Uh, you know, if it's a really good, a good idea and I, I don't know the person, uh, I, I still might accept the, this, this idea or this argument uh, just because it, it it makes sense to me based on everything else I, I have learned over time. When I think about trends, I typically divide them in a, into a technology trend and a social trend. And I'm wondering what social trend are you following or exploring right now that you find fascinating? What would it be very brief on? As far back as, as the year 2000, I wrote about the impending decline of the human population. Uh, and so Haley and Atulia, as a matter of fact, whom I met at that time was, was writing the same thing. Uh, it was at a time when everybody believed in it, and most people still believe that we're in the midst of a population explosion and that the population is going to grow forever until we overwhelm all the resources on Earth, not recognizing that birth rates are falling all over, all over the world, and especially in particular parts of the world, so that it's possible, at least, uh, to uh, imagine a world in which every year there are fewer people, not because of, of global disaster or pandemics, but simply because people aren't having children. Add a sufficient number to um, to replace the population, and then it raises all kinds of interesting questions about what happens to your social systems and your economy uh, and everything else. If if every year you have fewer people, take a simple example, which is your housing values. If every year there are fewer people to buy houses, people right now are concerned about high home prices. But if you reached a world 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now, um, what would that mean? So that that's interesting. When I, and I always pay attention. So whenever I see a statistic on or a new measurement of the, the population growth rate or, or decline rate, uh, I tune into that. Uh, but the one I, I mentioned, the, the major social trend that, I'm, that I follow the most closely right now, paid the most attention to, we mentioned earlier, and that's the, the global rise of authoritarianism. And I would call it the, the re-rise or reappearance of, of authoritarianism, because through almost all of human history, uh, human beings were were really ruled by tyrants, by ruling families, by royal families, and so on. So it's really the most common of all human experiences to live in that kind of system and to live in what we think of as democratic systems is really, of course, very recent and still uh, relatively rare. And, and apparently we're learning uh, how fragile it might be to maintain those kinds of systems. And, and my, the reason for raising that as, as a primary, perhaps the primary social trend, is that it's kind of an a priori trend. You can't fix transportation. You can't fix the global climate problem unless 
you have a governing system that works because my assumption, my assumption is that authoritarian systems would be, for example, less likely to try to transition out of a fossil fuel era into a new energy era. And so you've got to fix that issue first in order to deal with the other issues, which are in many ways equally important, but they don't come first. Can you ever imagine, and this seems unimaginable for most people I would imagine right now, but could you ever imagine a future where there is a single ruler or dictator governing over the entire population? You know, that's that's a really interesting question. I, I love that question because, of course, that's a trope of uh, some uh, futuristic space-based science fiction, isn't it? That, that there's uh, uh, Darth Vader or... Uh, uh, and who, who who was it? Who was it? Who commanded Darth Vader, uh, the emperor? You know, there, there's an emperor who rules many worlds. Uh, and so uh, the answer would be yes. I think I could imagine that um, a, a, a single ruler who ruled. It, it, you know, it's kind of far fetched, but but uh, but I think it is an imagine. It is certainly an imaginable future. I am by no means a futurist. I talk with a lot of futurists, but I have been thinking for a few years now that the problems, the real true problems that we face as humanity are global problems, pollution and climate and resource limitations and things of that nature. And in order to solve them, we can't solve them by a US policy or a China policy or an India policy. We need to solve these globally. And we don't have the infrastructure, we don't have the governance set up right now in order to do this effectively and efficiently. And so that's why I asked the question. Yeah, it's a really good one. I would say that the first decade that I was really full-time as a professional futurist having left academe was in the 1990s. And a major theme that I talked about at that time was the end of the nation state. Uh, and uh, writers like William Irwin Thompson, a great cultural historian and, and futurist, had written several books, or, and it was a major theme of his, and he was a major influence on me, that, that we were approaching the end of the nation state and that we would move to larger governance systems. Um, and nobody nobody really knows what those are. That you know, for a while people assume that maybe the United Nations would be the starting point. Uh, I think people are less optimistic about the UN in terms of that now. But at least it was it was an effort to to take a look at issues from a global perspective and at least try to align national interests around uh, how we approach certain global issues. World Health Organization the same thing. Um, it is clear that, that issues uh, have to be dealt, dealt with globally, and that's part of the problem of the rise of authoritarianism because it coincides with the rise of, of a re-rise of nationalism, of kind of hyper-nationalism. And so it makes uh, global solutions more instead of uh, less difficult. You talked about space, and that seems like a technology trend. Is there another technology trend that you're tracking or that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I, I do want to. I do want to emphasize space for just a second. Um, I had the opportunity um, to meet um, the the current space hero Elon Musk right in the first or second second or third year of SpaceX. It was it was might have been about the time they made their first successful flights, uh, and and I sat in a three hour meeting with him with about twenty other people, and he laid out on a whiteboard the twenty or twenty five year plan about how he was going to go to Mars. And I thought, this is the first guy that I've met since my early mentor who was involved in the Apollo spacecraft program, who was like that, who saw space not space development not as a way to get government contracts and make some money, but as a, as a future for humanity. 
Uh, and the reason that, that I, so I follow space technology very, very closely uh, because I want to know when it becomes more feasible for large numbers of people to go into space and to accomplish more things in space than pure exploration. Uh, and the key to that has been to bring down launch costs and uh, SpaceX has brought down the uh, launch, the cost of, of launch to orbit by uh, a NASA research director at NASA told me a factor of 14, but recently I read a factor of 11. But the, the, the next spacecraft we know, which they might test is this summer again with their first, the, 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 the big one, um, th that might bring down the cost by a significant factor more. And then we truly have the opportunity to become more a, a true spacefaring uh, civilization. And by that, I mean doing things in space for space, going to the asteroids and collecting resources and then building more things in space where people can uh, live and work uh, and then eventually becoming multiplanetary. And the reason I think that's important is that that only becomes possible if you do things on Earth that make Earth sustainable. In order to, to make the Earth sustainable, in order for us to have, an, have a global economy sufficient to support a, a space economy and a space economy to support us, um, you, you have to make an energy transition you know, in this century. You know, and the sooner the better, quite obviously. And that means a transition away from fossil fuels. And that means uh, solar energy and, and tracking what's happening there and wind energy and then other energy sources, whether that might be uh, tidal or wave energy, although those are relatively small sources, uh, geothermal. Or I do kind of hold out some hope for uh, fusion energy. That's, um, you know, my, my whole 40 year career as a futurist, fusion energy has been 40 years in the future. <laughs> I, I do read numbers now that say, oh, it might only be 20 years in the future, but I imagine 20 years from now, it'll be 20 years in the future. If that nut is ever cracked, then then the world truly changes in terms of, of, of having a, a true abundance of energy. Uh, it may not be all that cheap, but then you, but in a way that, that is not destructive to the environment in, in terms of uh, outgassing. And, and, then, and then you can begin to, to rewild the planet and uh, and kind of unwind what we've done in, in terms of, of global warming, and hopefully that could all you know I have to believe that can all get done in time uh, for the Earth to be sustainable, for humanity to, to be sustainable, uh, and for us to become uh, spacefaring. Um, I did a program in 2016 for the Boeing company. It was their hundredth anniversary. That we we put together. I put together a whole symposium for them, and it was looking at the next 100 years. And it was there that I that I met the a, a NASA research director who said, hundred years from now, the space economy could be larger than the Earth economy." That seems quite optimistic in terms of growth in space. But certainly, we could say perhaps a thousand years from now, the space economy, and just in terms of however you measure economic output, you know, dollars, whatever, uh, could be larger than than the Earth economy. But a whole lot of things have to go right, and a whole lot of good choices have to be made for that to become true. I love talking with futurists because they generally have a sense of optimism, despite having a sense of, you know, all of uh, what can go wrong with humankind. And talking with you, I certainly get a sense that you are an optimistic person. What's filling you with that optimism now? Well, what, what gives me optimism uh, is, the, is the rapidly declining uh, price of alternative energies uh, and the fact that the market is taking them up. Uh, and, and we're actually on a pathway. If you are really on an identifiable pathway for alternative uh, generation of electricity 
to replace some of what we do with or a good deal and perhaps most of what we do with fossil fuels in terms of, of buildings uh, and our built infrastructure. And then um, I've done a lot of research on electric uh, automobiles and the electrifying of the transportation system. And that trend line is very, very strong and, and growing stronger. And it's quite likely that, that almost all transportation will be electric in one form or another by 2040, if not well before that. So that gives me a reason to be optimism, optimistic. But I, but I want to add, uh, optimism is really not a response to the evidence. It's, it's an ethic um, that you live by or a choice that you make every day. Uh, because the world will always overwhelm us in, in, in the last, you know, certainly the last two and a half years, the world has overwhelmed us with a lot of negative news. And so you're not going to get up and look at the news and say, oh, that makes me feel optimistic. You're going to get up and say, I'm going to be optimistic in spite of what I'm seeing in the news, because that's how I want to live. There's a, uh, you, you might even know this name. There's a basketball coach by the name of George Raveling. He was the coach at Washington State University, Iowa, USC. And I love him very well, yes. Okay, so he was on stage with Martin Luther King. He was doing security during the I Have a Dream speech. And I've listened to him and I've emailed him and talked to him a couple of times. And there, there's something that he left me that's such a an incredible gem. He says, I wake up every day having the choice to make to have a good day or a great day. Those are the only two choices that I have. I've, you know, reached this point in my life. And, and the, every day now I wake up and decide to have a good day or a great day. And my children, four and six years old, for years I've been asking them, are you going to have a good day or a great day before I drop them off at school? So I really appreciate your sentiment around making that choice. I love that. I, I love that story. Thanks for sharing that. Well, you've been a futurist for 42 years. My last question for you, as you were kind enough to send me your first speech as a futurist from 1980, what would the futurist Glenn Heemstra 2022 tell the futurist Glenn Heemstra in 1980? Uh, I, I would tell that futurist to pay more attention to uh, climate change. You know, I, I was talking about climate change as, as a major theme by 1987, and but we knew we knew the hints of it in 1980, and I, I, would, I would emphasize that more and try, try to push harder uh, on that issue. Um, the, the other thing, the other thing I, I would tell, if you tell that futurist would be to um, to keep focused on helping people try to envision and create preferred futures, rather than caught in the, the easy professional trap of trying to help people anticipate what's going to happen in the future. When that's kind of a that's uh, kind of a, ho a hopeless task, and instead keep, keep focused on, on getting people to define their preferred future as you and your kids do every morning uh, now, and uh, and go for that instead of trying to guess what's going to happen today. I'm so grateful that you chose to have this conversation with me today. Thank you for your time, and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses, and thank you again to The Star Conspiracy for sponsoring our Summertime Futurist Friday series. We will return next week when I interview Australian futurist Ross Dawson. Ross is no stranger to the show. In April of 2021, he joined us to talk about the future of social media. This time, he'll talk about how he does his research, and we'll explore some of the trends he finds fascinating. Thank you to Richard, Jonathan, Jay, Tony, and the rest of the team at GL Pro in London for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.